Just a minute. I'm coming. FBI, open up! Just a minute. Hello, everybody. This is Legal Man. Welcome to the show. It's going to be a good episode. I'm going to cover that Carrie Lake case out there in Arizona, the actual opinion where she got mostly poured out, though not entirely poured out in her election fraud claims. This show has nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with me caring about Carrie Lake because I don't care either way. It's a way for me to use that case as a technology platform to explain the way the system actually works and to show people that this type of thing as a solution can never work. It will never, ever work. And that the judge, I don't think, did a that bad a job. <laughs> I just don't think he did. And so I'm going to go through and read most of the opinion. And you can judge for yourself. And for people who don't know me, I'm a lawyer. I've practiced for more than 30 years. I'm America's most trusted and beloved lawyer because I tell them the truth, like I do in this show. And the truth is I was a constitutional conservative who believed all this kind of Carrie Lake horse shit for years and years. And then I got the Internet about 25 years ago. And in fairly short order, I figured out that it was all a scam. Constitutional conservatism is a complete scam. And when I did that, I became a self-certified master practitioner. And I recently gave myself a Lifetime Achievement Award in the same vein for all these podcasts I've made explaining it to people. (laughs) So i got plenty of fake awards to put up against any of this other stuff. All right, enough fooling around. Let's go ahead and get the show going. So I want to make a show today about this Carrie Lake case out there in Arizona where there was so much absurd fraud going on, and it's just obvious as hell. And then she lost in people's minds. And anyone who's on social media has seen it. And I'm not doing it because I followed the case and I care. I think Carrie Lake is going to save anybody. It's all a complete show. I'm going to use it as a platform, a platform to show people the way the system actually works. Because it's obvious that people have no idea how the system actually works. And they see these kinds of stories with the con-cons pushing the stuff. And it looks pretty obvious to an outsider, a layman, that there was fraud or what they call fraud, generally fraud. The election wasn't legit. Let's just put it that way. You've got whatever it was, 60% of the printers failed in the areas where she was probably going to win and all this other stuff and these questionable things like the Democrat set up their offices sharing a wall with the place that counted the ballots. The lady who ends up certifying it is the one who she was running against. I mean, there's just every kind of... A questionable situation exists in the facts, the general facts. But what I want to do is show people that it's the details that matter, the procedural details, exactly what are you going to plead, exactly what is the court going to hear, exactly what kind of evidence you're going to be able to get in, etc. That actually matters. And this is the same reason I knew that this stupid Nuremberg 2.0 wasn't going to go anywhere. I knew this case It's not going to go anywhere. You're never going to win using the courts like this. It's never going to happen. You're never going to have situations where the certain kind of people have won or lost whichever side you're on, and you think that the system needs to clean it up, and you're going to take it to the court, blah, blah, blah. That's never going to happen. The courts are never going to be there to help you, and this case is a really good example. So what I've done is I pulled up the opinion that was written and issued, I think, on the 19th of December. So it was just basically a week ago, and everybody blew up, and it's all, they're upset about it. And I'm just, (laughs) uh, I think it's really helpful, because I read the opinion, and I don't think the opinion is all that bad. Now, I don't know all the details, but I've been screwed many, many times in opinions, and I don't think this judge is being so unfair. I don't know what this judge's history is. I don't know if he's a Democrat or Republican. I don't know, but it provides a great platform to go through and kind of show people the way legal system really works and why things like this are never going to be the solution. They're never going to be the solution. And this idea, she's going to keep fighting. Oh, boy, she doesn't know how to quit. Well, first of all, it's not her money. She's not fighting with her money. She's raising money from all these suckers. They're grifting. And then she doesn't even actually have to do anything. They pay themselves basically to be these professional politicians. And that's all this really comes down to. And the lawyers, I don't know if the lawyers are legit or not. I have no idea. I know lawyers are often swayed by how well 
finance their client is with regards to how aggressive they're going to be. <laughs> but beyond that, I think you're going to understand a lot more after I've gone through it. It's a relatively short-ish, I would call, opinion, but I think it's helpful. And so let's go ahead and look at it. You can find it any way you like by just simply putting a basic search in that says text uh, when it comes to the order in this case. But I'll probably, if I can remember to, I'll link it. So, so let's look at it. It says, pending before the court are three motions to dismiss plaintiff's complaint and verified statement of election contest filed individually by the Maricopa County defendants, Katie Hobbs in her capacity as Secretary of State and Katie Hobbs in her personal capacity as a contestee. Now, plaintiff filed a combined response to the motions and those who had moved to dismiss individually filed replies. The court heard oral arguments on the pending motion to dismiss on December 19th, 2022, and they ruled on the same day. They were set basically for a trial the next day. So they had to rule on it. This is not that unusual. Procedurally, what this means is that the state, when you filed a case, they filed what was a motion to dismiss, and that is, a, in effect, a motion on the pleadings, which means that you have to look at the pleadings and assume the facts are true with regards to what are claimed, and yet still decide whether or not the facts, as stated, make a case. And that's what the judge did. So I've told people all the time, the important thing is the standards, the burdens of proof, who has the burdens, what is the standard, et cetera, et cetera, what kind of evidence you're going to get in. And so the, the judge, next thing the judge does is what I've told people all the time. They set out what this is. And here's what he said about it, at least some of it. A motion to dismiss, which is the equivalent in federal court of something called a 12B6 motion. It's just a motion to dismiss based upon a judgment on the pleadings. And every state court has a, some kind of variation of this. And they all have different technical standards, though. They're ultimately very, very similar. So a motion to dismiss ought to be granted if there is no interpretation of the facts alleged in the verified statement susceptible to proof that entitles the plaintiff to relief. In other words, you just assume all the facts are true, right? Assume them all true. And you draw these inferences in favor of whoever the non-movement is. In this case, it would be uh, Carrie Late and her cohorts claiming that the thing was screwed up. And what happens is the state is saying these claims don't stand and should all be dismissed. In order to do that, they have to say why it is as a matter of law, what they call as a matter of law, that they simply don't state a claim for relief. It'd be no different than if you sued somebody for conversion or theft that you don't even allege they actually took anything. You just allege that they hurt your feelings. Okay, so you don't have a claim for theft if all you're saying, even in the best of circumstances, is someone hurt your feelings. And so, again, that's a very, very important point in this situation. So you have such stuff like this. The court also says, it says, allegations consisting of conclusions of law, inferences or deductions that are not necessarily implied by well-pleaded facts, unreasonable inferences or unsupported conclusions from such facts or legal conclusions alleged as facts are not presumed true. So you can see by him putting that statement in there, which is simply a quote from another case, which is all they do. They have to cite all these different cases to say what the so-called law is. You can see that this isn't going to go well for them because they're telling you what you have to do. And they're telling you that in his opinion, you're probably about to see a bunch of facts that are not necessarily implied by well-pleaded facts, unreasonable inferences and unsupported conclusions and legal conclusions alleged as facts is what you're about to see in this case. And therefore they're going to lose on most of these counts. Now, I don't know how much of that's true and how much is not, but I do believe that the case as he actually wrote it, is really pretty good. I'd say the the judge is not that unreasonable. Okay, he's not that unreasonable. <laughs> That's the reality. This is it's just a state court judge. A lot of times they they really suck. This guy actually writes a decent uh, opinion. Like I said, I'm not saying I'm on either side of it. To me, what I heard was pretty outrageous, and I think the election probably was completely and totally stolen from him. But again, it doesn't matter if they you think they were stolen in general. It doesn't really matter. What matters is what can you plead and what can you prove? And this is all this gigantic complex Ferengi game. It has nothing whatsoever to do with basic concepts. And people imagine the law is there to find justice, and it's not. I've tried to tell them again and again and again and again and again and again. That's not what the law is there to do. It's just simply not. 
So let's look at this first one. It says, count one, violation of freedom of speech, which is a weird kind of thing to make is your count one. Plaintiff's first count alleges that defendants, Hobbs and Riker's actions constitute per se violations of the First Amendment and its Arizona Constitution cognate that merit invalidation of the election results. I, I, this is shocking to me that anybody would ever bring a claim like that. I can just, not even knowing anything about Arizona law or anything else, having amjured First Amendments when I was in law school, this doesn't make any sense. This is not going to be a violation of your free speech rights. It's, it's just not going to work out. So here's what the court actually says about it. Not only does the verified statement fail to set forth an unconstitutional infringement on plaintiffs or anyone else's speech, even if it did, it would not set forth misconduct under Arizona law. And he cites the statute, ARS 16-672A1. <laughs> uh, plaintiff complains of two acts, the secretary and recorder censorship of certain social media posts by reporting them to the Department of Homeland Security and Center for Internet Security's election misinformation reporting portal (laughs) and the recorder's presentation to CISA, which is the same thing he just said, on the needs of election officials concerning purported election misinformation. I don't even need to know anything about the law to know that this is probably not going to hold water. That is nonsense to say that reporting something to the Department of Homeland Security election misinformation portal is somehow a violation of free speech. It's just, it's not going to work, man. You're never going to win on something like that for all these reasons you'll find out in here. Here's what the judge says. It's unclear after briefing what legal argument plaintiff is attempting to make by use of the word censorship. In their response to defendant's motions to dismiss, plaintiff argued that she need not set forth the First Amendment claim to prevail, but then argues that the challenged acts were illegal. What basis illegality of these acts could be argued apart from an alleged infringement of the freedom of speech, their verified statement does not say. Though the quintessential censorship prior restraint makes no appearance in the verified statement, given that the verified statement frames this as a First Amendment challenge, the court will proceed on that basis. Okay, so the verified statement is something that in certain kinds of complaints and litigation you have to swear to the facts in the thing, and it's sort of like an affidavit-ish type of thing that goes into the record, and it's not uncommon. But you can see from what he's saying, it's like, well, you know, where's the prior restraint? What's the actual complaint? You're just saying that this reporting, how does that work? Okay, so to me, it's ridiculous to make that the first makes no sense at all. It's just a terrible, that's a loser. You put your best stuff up front. Always put your best stuff up front. Because the judge may get confused and bored later and just not really touch on it. You got a winner, you got to put it up front. And don't just make it 15 different claims. Because I've found that most of the time that doesn't work. Because if your first couple best claims don't work, your last ones aren't going to work either. And if you've so misunderstood your own case that the best claim you have is your ninth different count, then you need to get a different kind of specialty in law and not take these kinds of cases. That's the reality continue. It's certainly true that a government has no power to restrict expressions because of its message, its ideas, its subject matter, or its content. And then they cite something. Indeed, content-based laws that target speech based on communicative content are presumptively unconstitutional and must pass muster under strict scrutiny. <laughs> of course, we all know this is all horseshit. This is just stuff they say. Okay. Just, it's just stuff they say. We all saw the Twitter files. We all know they do it all the time. They constantly go after people, take their licenses for shit. We saw it during the pandemic. It doesn't matter. They just have to, they have to mouth these words because this is what the so-called law says. And these trial courts are bound to simply follow whatever the appellate law says. That's it. They're not entitled to go outside that. So let's see what he says. But this analysis premised on state action. The First Amendment does not restrain private parties from opposing speech or choosing what to publish. How convenient that is, right? See, So you have to first show that there's some kind of state action. This is how they get around all this stuff with this uh, social media crap, where they just insert a third party in between, and then they control the third party, as we're seeing with FBI and CIA agents and ex-agents and controlled shit and threats. And and (laughs) this is what they do. This is how it works. But first thing you have to show is there's some kind of state action, right? Where's the state action? 
going on here. Let's go on and see. This is the key deficiency with the claim against the recorder and secretary's respective reports to the election misinformation reporting portal. After the report is made, there is no further conceivable state action. Twitter, to take one example, takes down posts that offend its terms of service after a report is made, and neither the recorder nor the secretary are alleged to have control over that process or are alleged to have the authority to compel such a takedown. Okay, see, so even though we all know that's what happens, one, they can't really allege it with any kind of particularity and verification, and two, uh, they don't have any proof of it. All they have is just a statement. And they didn't have the Twitter files at that point, right? So we all know this is another way that the state can do what it wants to. So let's listen to what else he says. Explaining that case he just said, he says, action taken by private entities with the mere approval or acquiescence of the state is not state action. You see how they play all these games? See, this is why you're never going to win, because the state, when it comes to suing the state, they have thousands, endless ways to defend themselves against this stuff. Endless! And they have all the advantages because they write all the stuff that gives them all the protection. Twitter or any other social media company is a private actor, and the plaintiff has alleged no fact taken in the light most favorable to her that leads to a reasonable inference of government coercion or control by the recorder or secretary. Okay, there you go. See, you can't get it. You can't get any proof, so you're going to lose. It doesn't matter that we all know it's happening. It doesn't matter. They have these made-up rules that the court has to follow. It's not because he's corrupt that he's doing that. He's just following the rules. He's writing the opinion based upon the way the rules work. This is the way the rules work. This is why you can't win inside the system. <laughs> is that complicated? Let's continue. Nor does the First Amendment restrain the government from engaging any speech contrary to the views of some constituents. A proposition which defeats the claim against the recorder for his presentation to CISA. In other words, they're claiming that just actually saying something as the recorder, in other words, her opponent, by sending this stuff off there, and in fact as an official government agent, uh, somehow was government speech that was impermissible in violation of her First Amendment rights. It's just not going to work. Here we got another exception here, right? Got a yet another exception. A government entity has the right to speak for itself. It is entitled to say what it wishes and to select the views that it wants to express. <laughs> you see that? See, this is what happens. This is the way it works. There's all these different things where it's like an average person who just hears this stuff, it's outrageous, right? And if it worked the way I said, the way a trial's supposed to work, where you have jury nullification, the jury just gets to hear the facts they want to hear and isn't bound by all these made-up additional rules, this would be a slam-dunk winner for her. See, it'd be a slam-dunk winner because given the actual general facts of the case, it's obvious as hell what went on here. But when you get down into the details of the way the law actually works and the way you actually have to apply it with the actual facts, the actual claims, and all the made-up defenses the government's invented, you can't win. Let's continue with this, citing the Supreme Court here in a quote. When a government entity embarks on a course of action, it necessarily takes a particular viewpoint and rejects others. The free speech clause does not require government to maintain viewpoint neutrality when its officers and employees speak about the venture. Put another way, nothing in the First Amendment keeps a government official from presenting his views on election misinformation to another government body or a private entity both of which in this case were free to adopt or reject the recorder's position. Nothing about this allegation raises a First Amendment claim. <laughs> that's it. See, this is how you lose. Just like that. It's not complicated. They have a made-up thing. Well, of course the government can say this, but they're not obligated to comply. Well, we all know what that means. We all see what happens. Of course they're not technically obligated to comply, but they all do comply because if you don't comply, then you're destroyed by government. You're destroyed by government. <laughs> but you're not required to, just like you weren't required to wear a mask. You weren't required to take a shot. Oh, sure, you lose your job and you lose your license and your life is destroyed, but you weren't required to. Now, I told people this back when the stupid fake pandemic started and they started with all these requirements. They have a million ways to get around it. You're not going to win on claims like this. Let's continue. To the extent the verified statement raises the Arizona Constitution's independent and broader guarantee of free speech, they do not defend this argument in the briefing. Okay, so they didn't, they didn't raise it in the briefing. So it doesn't really matter. Moreover, even if the plaintiff successfully pled a First Amendment challenge, she cannot argue that these alleged First Amendment violations constitute election misconduct. Yet another way that the whole thing works. 
The statute requires misconduct on the part of election boards or any members thereof in any of the counties or the state or on the part of any officer making or participating in a canvas for a state election. Got it? Then they cite Arizona statute 16-672A1. So here we go. More Ferengi complicated detail rules you're going to have to fit within. There'll be a thousand different interpretations I'll be bound to. Two types of misconduct are therefore implicated by election boards or members and any officer making or participating in a canvas. The secretary and recorder are not automatically members of election boards. So if defendants committed misconduct, it must be done while making or participating in a canvas to come within the ambit of A1. Both actions alleged to be misconduct took place months prior to canvassing and consequently cannot be considered misconduct under the statute. <laughs> All right, so you don't fit the other requirements they've got, this made-up thing. You've got to either be on the election board or you have to fit within canvassing, and they don't fit within either, so you're poured out. It's over. That first count's dismissed. In other words, she loses first count. All right, let's look at the next one. Illegal tabulator configurations. This is an interesting one. This is the fact that all these printers weren't working. And it was obvious as hell that they were preventing people from voting. And they have a fascinating way of getting around this one, too. Plaintiff alleges that ballot-on-demand printers that malfunctioned on Election Day were not certified and have vulnerabilities that render them susceptible to hacking. According to a declaration attached to this statement, Plaintiff alleges separately that the ballot-on-demand printers, which are called BOD printers, malfunction because of an intentional action. Plaintiff alleges these combine to provide grounds for setting aside election results, both A1 for misconduct and A4 for illegal votes. All right, so what you've got here is a situation where all these printers didn't work, so all these people that looked like they were probably going to vote for her in overwhelming amounts weren't able to vote at all. And this was kind of the heart of the complaint as well. It's fascinating to see how they just toss this one aside. The court takes plaintiffs to mean two things by this. The use of the BOD printers lacking certification was misconduct by some responsible official and that someone did something to the printers to cause them to misprint ballots. Okay, I think that's reasonable, right? I don't think that's an unreasonable type of conclusion. The former is not enough to state a claim. (laughs) In other words, the use of those BOD printers lacking certification is not enough to state a claim. I think that's funny. Plaintiff cites 52 U.S.C. 21081B and Arizona Section 16442 for the proposition that devices such as tabulators and election software must be certified under the Help America Vote Act. (laughs) But plaintiff goes further, arguing that BOD printers, because they fall under the definition of voting system under HAVA, must also be certified. Defendants argue, making reference to Title ARS 16442, that only the vote tabulating system is required to be certified pursuant to HAVA, which is that stupid Help America Vote Act. (laughs) However, this court will only result to using the title of the statute to help discern legislative intent when the statute was ambiguous. Ah, here we go, the ambiguous statute shit. Like the old Saturday Night Live, the ambiguously gay duo. Recourse to such methods is unnecessary where context is fruitful. In other words... He doesn't even need to go look at whether it's ambiguous or not because we've got context. Courts give the words of a statute their commonly accepted meaning unless a special meaning is apparent from the context. First of all, it's total bullshit. It's true in that that's what they say they do, but then oftentimes they just give the word a non-common meaning and say they're giving it a common meaning. What I'm saying is that there's many ways to get screwed. I've been screwed many ways by courts, outright corruption and fraud. Uh, I had a court rule that one or more means more than one. One or more does not mean more than one. One or more means one or more than one. That's what it means. And they just read out the one part and just stuck with the more part. That's a way they can screw you. They could say that's a common meaning or they could say what's in the context. It doesn't matter. Once they say it, it's over. See, once they say it, it's over. There's no way to win in a case like that. I don't think that kind of thing happens in this case, but I'm saying that's another way you can lose, that they can say they're doing one thing and, in fact, not do it. So let's look at what they actually do in this case. From context alone, the court agrees with the defendants that the machines and devices in subsection B are the same as those in A, and thus only machines and devices that record or tabulate votes must be certified in compliance with the HAVA to comply with Arizona law. Moving there to the Arizona statute, the court finds the definition of vote tabulating equipment must apply to any apparatus necessary to automatically examine and count votes as designed on ballots and 
tabulate the results. In other words, he finds that the printer itself has nothing to do with tabulating a vote. And in fact, that's true. It doesn't have anything to do with tabulating a vote. It's true you can't cast a vote without a printer, but it has nothing to do with tabulating the vote. You can print it out on any kind of printer you want. And I suspect that the people who pulled all this scam, this fraud, this joke of a deal, the Democrats, they have better election lawyers, and they already knew this. And so they said, look, if we just don't print the stuff out, they can't win. <laughs> if, if we just torpedo them with that, then that'll be enough because it'll be a close enough race. And this is why I always say it's these close races, it doesn't work. That's why there need to be overwhelming results. These 50.1% votes are bullshit. But you can see that's not an unreasonable finding. I think I probably agree with that finding. That a, it, a printer is not part of a vote tabulating a piece of equipment or an apparatus. I, I don't think it is. You know, and I don't care which way this thing comes out. But if I'm a judge and they're saying printers are part of the vote tabulating, I don't think so. What if all their pencils kept breaking? What if that happened? Would that be part of the vote tabulating result? No, it wouldn't be. What if the ability to cast a vote was screwed up? Like the people couldn't get in doors all jammed. And you couldn't get outside because it was raining. Stuff was all getting ruined. Would that be a problem with the vote tabulating equipment? No, it's not. So the printer wasn't. So they had this, in effect, a gaping sort of a hole in the whole thing. And now we'll hear all about how they're going to have to go in there and make sure they clean up these laws and make sure that, okay, always the same. You're going to have to figure out some way so it never happens again. Okay. Let's continue on. Consequently, a ballot printer, which neither examines nor counts nor tabulates, is not a component of the vote tabulating system and need not be laboratory certified. I don't think that's an unreasonable finding. (laughs) I just don't. He goes through and explains a little bit more about it. While the federal definition of voting system certainly is more expansive and could conceivably include ballot printers, the federal voting system definitions do not limit the devices that Arizona can employ for printing ballots and, in fact, prescribes neither a certification requirement for printers nor federal remedy, i.e. reconducting an election for failure to certify equipment. Nor does that statute even reference laboratory certification. Indeed, the state use of federally accredited laboratories for certification is discretionary. A federal penalty would make no sense under 52 U.S.C. Section 2971. Thus, the lack of certification of any BOD printer cannot give rise to a claim under the Arizona law. I don't think that's not a reasonable finding. I really don't. (laughs) Let's continue on. The twin allegation that the BOD printer's failures render the vote illegal also fails. An illegal vote is one that is either cast by a voter who is ineligible to vote or one cast in a manner that by statute invalidates the vote. What the plaintiff is essentially arguing is essentially a fruit of the poisonous tree argument, which is this is an evidentiary argument he's talking about there. It's common, where if you get evidence from an illegal search, you can't use it in order for the conviction because it's a fruit of the poisonous tree. If you lie about the reason to get the search, anything you find in the search you can't use. Same kind of thing here. That, that contamination in one part of the election process renders the result illegal. However, that is not the framework given in either the election statutes which, again, this court must construe in favor of an election result, or the over a century of Arizona case law interpreting these statutes. Plaintiff cannot point to a single case where an illegal vote was a missing vote. To the extent such a claim is cognizable, it is under A5 and is not raised here, because plaintiff does not allege that the BOD printer failure either caused a vote to be cast by an ineligible voter or caused a vote to be cast and counted when the vote should not have been counted. She has not stated a claim under Section A4. Okay, so again, what did the court say? The court's just saying, look, you're saying all this illegal votes. If you look at the statute, you didn't claim this under A5. You claimed under A4, and I haven't looked at the details of it. But anyhow, the point is the same, and that is that the special pleading, the way you have to fit, that a vote that doesn't get cast is not an illegal vote under the definition of an illegal vote. And honestly, I don't think it's that bad a rule. I mean, to be honest with you, how the hell can you know who should have voted, would have voted, could have voted, how they would have voted? You're just off in fantasy land now, right? An illegal vote is a vote where you can look at the vote and see that this vote was shit. It shouldn't have been counted or was counted the wrong way or the person had no right to vote. Not that there's a person who would have voted in a certain way and therefore they didn't get to vote and therefore it was an illegal vote. I don't think it's that bad a ruling. 
<laughs> I don't. I'm just showing you that the way the law is constructed, uh, okay, if you got to fit within these statutes. Well, you don't fit. That's all. You don't fit. <laughs> it's not complicated. Let's continue. While the court finds that plaintiff does not state a claim under ARS 16-672A4, the court finds that plaintiff does state a claim under A1. Viewing the complaint in light most favorable to the movement, plaintiff specifically alleges that a person employed by Maricopa County interfered with BOD printers in violation of Arizona law, resulting in some number of lost votes for plaintiff. So, see, this is a situation where you're saying, look, most of your case is shit, but you can move forward on this. And he says it very clearly. Plaintiff is entitled to attempt to prove at trial that the malfeasant person was a covered person under A1 and that the printer malfunctions caused by this individual directly resulted in identifiable votes lost for plaintiff and that these votes would have affected the outcome of the election. So they are entitled to go forward on that. <laughs> They're never going to win on that. I didn't do a follow-up. They had the hearing on the 20th. I don't know if there's been a ruling, but you're never going to win on that. And you're going to have all the burden on that. How the hell are you ever going to prove all of that shit? How are you going to prove that? That the printer malfunctions caused by this individual directly resulted in identifiable lost votes for plaintiff. These votes would have affected the outcome of the election. What are you going to have? Thousands of people come in, swear in, say that they had this problem at this location and they couldn't have voted and count them all up. And you can have all sorts of defendants and then bring in all sorts of people that show that they would have voted the other way and they also were denied it. How the hell are you going to sort all this out? You can't. It's totally impossible. But he's letting her go forward. He's letting her go forward. He didn't pour her completely out. And this is one of the other big problems is they're hoping that they could just simply get the entire election overturned and get her put in. No different than those Bronson brothers think 385 congressmen should get tossed out. The request for relief is absurd. I get people all the time that ask me, well, what can you do about this? I said, what are you specifically going to ask the court to do? Right? What is it you're asking the court to do? Does the court even have the authority to do what you're asking? Most of the time they don't when people just are just dreaming about what should happen, the so-called fantasies of the Constitution, the fairness, and all this other shit. They don't even have the authority. So let's read on. Plaintiff initially cited to Hunt for the proposition that instead, if this count survives, it must result in a revote of the entire election because of fraudulent combinations, coercion, and intimidation. But plaintiff has not alleged fraud, nor pled it with particularity. Fraud must be pled with particularity. And that's pretty much true everywhere. Fraud ought to never be inferred from slight irregularities unconnected with incriminating circumstances, nor should it be held as established by mere suspicions, often having no higher origin than partisan bias and political prejudices. This is another one of these examples of the court being kind of bound. You can't turn breach of contract into fraud just because the guy didn't do it. And you can't turn this stuff into fraud unless you plead it. You have to plead fraud very particularly. And the reality is that she disclaimed her previous theories of fraud in her own pleadings. So there's no basis to move forward because she doesn't even have a live pleading on fraud. She's withdrawn it. Let's finish up this claim. Plaintiff has nonetheless also alleged intentional misconduct sufficient to affect the outcome of the election and thus has stated an issue of fact that requires going beyond the pleadings. The court takes no position as the evidentiary weight it will give plaintiff's proffered experts at trial and notes that at trial it must indulge all reasonable assumptions in favor of the election when weighing the evidence before However, the evidence is not before the court at the motion to dismiss stage. Pleadings made under the auspices of Rule 11 are, accordingly, plaintiff must show at trial that the BOD printer malfunctions were intentional and directed to affect the results of the election and that such actions did actually affect the outcome. Again, in other words, he simply narrowed the claims in count two, and she's going to go forward on the, actually in the next day, December 20th, with the attempt to make those kinds of claims. Okay, well, you can see how there's no chance since the burden will completely shift. At this time, at this procedural point, all the facts and inferences, they go in her favor. When you go to trial, they all get reversed and they go against her. Well, how the hell is she going to win that? She's not going to. <laughs> She's not going to. All right, let's do a couple of these others because I think they're helpful. It's gonna, the show's going to be a little long, but that's just the way it goes. I think it's really helpful to read through this and show people that this is the detail that you have to get down into. This is the way the system is constructed. This is why you don't have a chance, because nobody understands these things, see? except for the lawyers. And even lawyers only involved in these kinds of very specialized suits understand the details of it. All lawyers understand the, the general stuff I'm talking about, that you have to make a pleading at the, the different 
burdens change, that the court is bound by all these different interpretations, that the trial court has to rely on whatever the appellate courts have said. I've told that to people again and again. All this crap, the way they force these courts to have to follow all this stuff that happened before, it just makes it impossible to win because they have these little levers and they have these rulings and then they just get cited. But I don't think anything I've read so far, I mean, I don't see how anybody can really object to it. I just don't think what he's doing is unreasonable. You know, and the problem is the system itself is a joke. It allows for this kind of scammery. So let's look at count three, invalid signatures on mail-in ballots. This is another important one, right? So we've knocked out the social media First Amendment crap that they turned them into Homeland Security. And then we've knocked out now all the printers that went wrong. Now we're looking at the invalid mail-in ballots. Plaintiff next argues that the signature invalidation methodology utilized by Maricopa County did not comply with the statute. Specifically, plaintiff argues that the review of mail-in ballot signatures conducted pursuant to the Maricopa County election manual is inadequate. She makes reference to Maricopa County signature reviewer declarations that are critical of the process used to cure ballots that at first glance did not match the signature on file for that voter, but the defendants argue that this claim is subject to latches. In other words, what's happening here is that Carrie Lake is complaining that the system they're going to use to validate these signatures on the mail-in ballots sucks, doesn't work, and has created, in effect, a bunch of problems. And what the defendant is saying is that you may have a perfectly valid claim about that. The problem is it's too late. (laughs) It's too late. The only time you can complain about that is prior to the election so that we can change the process so that the election can go forward with a process that is sufficient that everybody knows the process that's out there ahead of time. You need to go fix that prior to the time of the election. That's what latches means. Latches is an equitable doctrine that precludes claims that are brought after an unreasonable delay or where that unreasonable delay prejudices the other parties, the administration of justice or the public. (laughs) Uh, So it prejudices them, see? And that's a legal term of art. Obviously, holding an election that's patently absurd like this doesn't actually prejudice the public in any form or fashion, except to the extent that it's found valid. But because the way latches is interpreted and the way the courts are obligated to use it, this claim does fit clearly within latches. Everybody knows an election that if you are involved in these kinds of things, you have to object to these processes and procedures prior to the time of the election. You can't go forward with it and then try to ambush them afterwards and say, well, we lost, but now we want to argue about this, because then every election would just be open to this endless litigation, right? It would be open to endless litigation. And you know the way I feel about elections. They're a fucking joke anyway. But if you're going to stay within the system, this is the reality. This is the problem. You needed to have complained about it before, and he's, he's right to pick on that. <laughs> he cites a bunch of stuff here. Procedures leading up to an election cannot be questioned after the people have voted, but instead the procedures must be challenged before the election is held. And it makes sense. A challenger may not ambush an adversary or subvert the election process by intentionally delaying a request for remedial action to see first whether they will be successful at the polls. Right. In other words, you don't get two bites of the apple. You don't get to hold the election under a system that you don't trust. And then when you lose... Complain about the system, because if you win, you're not complaining about the system, and so you don't get two bites of the apple, and that's what election and latches and all this crap is designed to prevent. So again, I don't think it's unreasonable. I just don't think it's unreasonable. You can't complain about this stuff later, and so again, they're going to lose. Let's continue to read a little bit more of this. Considering first plaintiff's delay, plaintiff makes much of a report by Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich issued on April 6, 2022, that reported that the early ballot affidavit signature verification system in Arizona, and particularly when applied to Maricopa County, may be insufficient to guard against abuse. Whatever the merits of that position applied to these facts, plaintiff was on notice by April, at the latest, of the procedural defects she now raises in her challenge and offers no explanation for the delay. Right. Boom. In other words, you're going to lose on latches. It's just, you're going to lose. <laughs> it's just, you can't win if you wait that long, Period. Let's see the last section. As for prejudice, so in other words, he's too, he's too late. It's clear. Now, what about prejudice? As for prejudice, as another department of this court indicated in dismissing another election claim, any procedural challenge post-election asks us to overturn the will of the people. Oh, yes, of course, as expressed in the election. In other words, the will of the people is expressed in a corrupt election. That's what it's asking you to overturn. This is an exceedingly high degree of prejudice against both the parties and the public, which this court is loath to excuse. 
Therefore, because plaintiff was on notice at a minimum months before the election as the nature of the ballot signature reconciliation process and chose not to challenge it, then her claim is barred by latches. In other words, yeah, there probably is prejudice there, but the court's not going to get involved in something like that because it's an exceedingly high degree of prejudice. Okay. In other words, there's a huge amount of prejudice against the population. You can't get an election go forward, have people imagine they're going to go out and be all troubled against all this shit and never having raised a claim. See, so the prejudice strikes against her as well as in favor of her. Yeah, you don't want an illegal election, but you also can't allow an election to go forward without complaining about it and then turn around and complain about it, like I said. It doesn't work. See, it doesn't work. You can't have that kind of thing. All right, let's look at uh, let's look at one more of these things. Maybe another. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting case, but I think people are getting the feel for it. And now we're going to do at least going to do this chain of custody. There's another uh, one because he dismisses count three outright. Count four is the ballot chain of custody. Okay, so another one of these things that sounded pretty good. Plaintiff next claims that violations of the county election manual pertaining to chain of custody constitute misconduct by. Arizona Statute 16-672A1. Specifically, the plaintiff argues that the ability of employees of the county ballot contractor to add ballots of family members and the lack of an inbound receipt of delivery form both constitute misconduct. This is in addition to complaints about the handling of ballots in the 2020 election. The allegations concerning 2020 have no bearing on this contest and the court does not consider them, which he's right not to do. Plaintiff alleges that ballots of some number were added by run back employees to the total in violation of Arizona Statute 16-1016. Further, the plaintiffs alleged the lack of receipt of delivery forms were violations of state law that permitted an indeterminate number of votes to be added to the official results constituting misconduct. Okay, so this is another one of these hearts of the complaints, right? They're adding these things in, nobody knows what the hell's going on, and it's very suspicious. Here's what the court says about it. The court, drawing inferences in the light most favorable to the plaintiff, as it must at this stage, finds that plaintiff has stated a claim of misconduct by a person under control of Maricopa County that affected the canvas under ARS 16672. Defendants argue that latches applies. However, latches do not apply to contests arising from violation of Election Day procedures, as opposed to challenges to the procedures themselves. Okay, so I think that's an important point. Again, he's, I think he's being very fair, right? He's, he's saying that, yeah, look, they have stated a claim if you want to give them all the facts most beneficial to them, that they have stated theoretically a claim that there was a problem here. And then it's not poured out by latches because it wasn't something they could have complained about until the election day itself because that's when the conduct occurred. So they're okay. Defendants dispute the lack of compliance with the chain of custody laws and claim that plaintiff has misunderstood the forms required. As presented, whether the county complied with its own manual and applicable statutes is a dispute of fact rather than one of law. This is true as to whether such lack of compliance was both intentional and did in fact result in a changed outcome. Consequently, plaintiff has stated a claim. So they are going to get to move forward on that. See, so again, I think he's being very fair. I mean, how do you get any more fair than that? Right? He's, he's dividing it out. They can go forward on that. So he, didn't, he didn't pour them all out like they presented in internet and social media. If you actually look at his decisions, like I don't, I, it's hard to complain about it. Like I said, there's a lot of ways you can get screwed by courts. A lot of ways. This is not one. I mean, at most, this is one that's screwing the system, screwing you. It really is. At most, this is one that the system's screwing you. Not because the judge is just really screwing you. It's just not. And they're very, very unfair the way they've characterized it. There's a couple other complaints here, a couple other challenges here, the equal protection and due process. Those are shit anyway. He just tosses it away, and I'm not going to cover that because it's silly. They got another one here, the secrecy clause that the plaintiff argued that the mail-in ballot procedure is unconstitutional. So you're, now you're getting down to these, these, all these ridiculous kinds of claims you make at the end. Uh, he just tosses that one away. And I don't, again, I don't think it's a bad one. He, he tosses that one uh, on latches as well. Then he tosses another one on incorrect certification. It's not an independent cause of action, he says. It also gets dismissed. Again, you're, you're way, way, way down. Now you're at count nine, inadequate remedy. Okay, you're not, you're not going to wait on that crap. I mean, this is why they're throwing them in, right? It's, it's, it's just made up shit. Then just a general constitutional rights, again, just crap. It's just tossing all this stuff. And that all fits with the things I've told people, again, which is that you take your best stuff, you put it up front, 
And if you can't win on your best stuff, you're not going to win on your shitty stuff, okay? And that's just what happens here. That's why I'm not going to go into detail of all 10 different counts. I've read the ones that matter everybody knows about. And if the better arguments were way down at 9 and 10, well, then you've got a bad lawyering and the thing needs to be up at 1 <laughs> or 2. Okay, so it's always the same. I think it's a big waste of time to throw those in. People do them for purposes of appeal and all sorts of other technical reasons they throw them in. But... I think it's bad form. It's almost never a winner. And the only time you ever see this kind of thing is when you see people litigating without their own money. If they're litigating the thing and it's not really about their own money, then that's when you see this kind of litigation where they just do all this kitchen sink horse shit. They toss all sorts of stuff in because the lawyers are just getting paid. And the people who are directing it and so-called paying the lawyers, it's not their own money. They're just sending out email blasts and getting stuff. Help us save the Constitution and all this other shit. And the idiots... Uh, all pile in and give money. So that's what ended up happening there. And they're having a trial on the next day. And very interestingly, in my opinion, I think that you get this idea of these trials that go on and on and on. That's not the case. The time allocated, and this was put in the order as well, that the compressed time for presentation is based not only on the time constraints imposed by Arizona Statute 16-676 and the short time frame before January 2nd, but the parties expressed desire to leave at least some time to file an appeal before the January 2nd deadline. The time allocated means each side will have five and a half hours available for opening statement, direct examination of witnesses, cross-examination of opposing witnesses, redirect examination of witnesses, and closing arguments. 30 minutes is deducted from each side's allocated six hours to allow for a 15-minute break each morning and afternoon. That's how much time you're going to get. This is why things like the OJ trial and all these trials they put on TV, they're all horseshit. It's not the way it works. You don't get endless weeks and weeks and weeks to put on as much as you want, have all this stupid crap. It's not the way trials work. Here, you can see in this situation, you're getting five and a half hours. He's deducting out a half hour for breaks, <laughs> which is hilarious, and it's accurate. He's not screwing them. This is the way it actually works. See, this is the way it actually works. So they had their little trial. I don't know what happened on the 20th. It doesn't matter. They're never going to win this thing. You can see from just reading this opinion. It doesn't really matter. You're never, ever going to be able to present facts. And if with five and a half hours, how are you ever going to prove any of those things that he said to have to prove? How are you going to bring people in? Hundreds and hundreds of people. How are you going to do it? You can't. You only get five and a half hours. You only get five and a half hours to put on your argument. Just pulling witnesses in and swearing them in. It's never going to work. You can never win these kinds of cases. The system is not set up to do it. It's not set up to do it. That's all. It's set up to do exactly what it did. <laughs> Period. That's it. And this is a great platform. It's a, it's a case I genuinely think that when I saw the internet, social media crap, all poured out and judges corrupt and blah, blah, blah. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to look at it. So I looked it up and you, now you've heard it. It's not like I read every single thing in here, but I read basically all of it. It's only 12 pages and I read most of it. And certainly the claims that matter, I read it all. And you can see the way it actually works. You see, you see the way it actually works, not the way people imagine it works, not the way you're told, not the rah-rah, con-con, horseshit, send us money nonsense. Now you see the reality. That's it. You can see that all the things I tell people all the time in my show, explain to them, you can see them all here with the burdens and the proof and the details and the obligation of the court to stay within these limits, this. And it's not about justice. You're never going to win in this system. It's never, ever going to happen. And whether Carrie Lake is going to continue to fight on, who knows? I don't trust that woman for a second. These people are professional politicians. And they're only either ignorant of it or they're in on it. That's it. Either way, it doesn't help. They can never lead you out. Just like the con-cons in media. How many of them have gone through and showed you this? No, they just try to rah-rah and get you to, oh, imagine the outrage. And we've got to win it back and send more money and we got to get our people in there and clean it all up and blah, blah, blah. They're never going to clean up any of the parts that are actually problematic because they all support it. Law and order, because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Or they do, and they're on the scam. That's it. It's the only thing there is. So I think it's helpful. Like I said, it has nothing to do with caring about Carrie Lake, whether she wins, because I know she's never going to help us anyway. It has to do with showing you that these things that people see in the news and the media and the way it's reported, it's grossly distorted because the real problems are all hidden. The real problems are all hidden. The problems are the kinds of things I talk about in my show. 
but you just don't ever hear people talk about them. And most people simply aren't qualified to even read that opinion like I just did to you and explain it to you. They just aren't. And the lawyers who are qualified to do it, they don't have shows. And they're not about to take any of the chances I've taken. Tell people. That's all. It's that simple. There's really nothing else to it. This is why it's totally hopeless to stay within this stupid system and to imagine that voting for Republicans is ever going to do anything. That's it. And yet it's a multi-billion dollar industry on media and academia and everything else. And my show just sits around giving people actual solutions and answers and explanations. And it's just nothing. <laughs> it doesn't ever get traction. It's funny to me, but I'm kind of burning out on telling the people because they're fucking idiots. They won't listen. And they just, I get sick and tired of listening to con cons defend the system because they're just crooked. So... That's it. The show ran long. I knew it would. It's no big deal. I, like I said, I, a while back, I decided I'm going to make shows that take as long as they take. And I'll do series when it's going to be a big subject. But otherwise, a subject like this, it needs to be covered in one show. So I hope it was helpful. Like I said, I will do my best to remember to link this. And if you want to follow me, you can. I'm Legal Man at U.S. Crime Review on Twitter. They've got me seriously restricted down. It's really preposterous once again. I was actually getting a lot more interaction when I was on private mode. That's how bad it's gotten with the Musk. So there's no freedom of speech. There's freedom of speech. Absolutely, there's freedom of speech. As long as you just go over to this little soundproof closet, you can, of course, you're welcome to say anything you want. (laughs) Um, As far as the movie goes, I'm getting tired of even giving updates, but there's no change. We still expect the movie to be out in a few weeks. So it's going to be good. Jones Plantation. I play Mr. Jones. Written by Larkin Rose. I think it's going to really be entertaining. I saw the rough cut. It was really, really entertaining. Hope people buy it, watch it, share it, get other people to watch it. it. It's a great allegory about going from chattel slavery to debt slavery and showing what a scam our system is. And I also really want to thank the people who are in Patreon who, who kick skin in the game and support my show. I really appreciate you guys. You have a lot of integrity. And, and really, ultimately, I make the show for you guys at this point. And thank you. I take a lot of risks. It takes a lot of time. But for people who actually care, I'm happy to do it. I really am happy to explain it to people. It took me decades to figure it out. And I'm happy to save people that time and trouble. Most people will never be able to figure it out. But it's good to be able to know that there's other people who care and want to know and get it. Because then I don't feel quite as crazy. (laughs) Isolated in this insane culture idiots running around defending this stupid system they don't have any idea what it is and i've made hundreds of shows now explaining it to people and it's just clear as day i'm right it's just not even questionable that's why they have to ignore my show it's why my show has to be suppressed because there's no answer to my shows it's like spooner there's no answer to spooner there's no answer to the kinds of things i said in this show here there's no answer to the stuff i say in every one of my shows it's just simple facts people don't like it because it goes against everything they imagine is true the freedom machine they imagine they live in, constitution, founders, all the stupid crap they believe. It's just not true. So thank you guys in Patreon. I really do appreciate you. Beyond that, I don't think there's anything else to say. So I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. You guys have been a great audience as usual. Everybody have a nice dinner day wherever you are. Take care. Thank you, everybody. Let's put your hands together one more time. Legal man.